Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome back to Heather's Sugar Connection. <laughs> Come on. That's why I wanted to start. You this whole sugar funny. thing. You yeah. like mess up your microphone thingy, by the way. Look at their it, little screen thing. No, no. The screen. There. Okay. So this. It was off like two millimeters. Like, <laughs> it was like two inches. You know, it's only me here today. We don't have Charlie Resnikoff, so it's not quite as fun for Heather. But Heather, tell us a little bit more. I'll be like, I'm interviewing you. Tell us a little bit more about this whole sugar problem. Jeez, we're not doing that. <laughs> anyway, everybody, y'all heard last not week. Not your problem. I'm just saying the <laughs> evolutionary and genetic stuff. And we will get there. You can still communicate here. I mean, although I could just mute you all together. It wouldn't be so. <laughs> yeah, all of, a sudden, all of a sudden mine's just nothing. <laughs> you hear like whispers that come through mine. Too. I think they could hear me through yours. Turn me off once. That's what I'm saying. They just hear whispers. Turn well, no. I can hear you because I'm in the same room with you. We'd like to have feedback if people could hear him. Okay, so go ahead. <laughs> wow. Talk about some of the evolutionary genetic aspects of this crazy sugar problem. Sugar problem. I love it. Okay, so yes, last time we kind of Hold touched it. on this nutrition transition theory. Do you ever have people from the South that you saw and they'd say, I got sugar diabetes? Instead of diabetes, they'd say, I got sugar diabetes. Well... You know, it's very descriptive. Yeah. If they, I couldn't say it with a Southern accent, but it sounds really cool when they say they got sugar diabetes. I'm glad you didn't try to use one, not until I'm telling you to now. Okay. Okay. So evolutionarily, this is super duper interesting and fascinating and probably stuff that people are going to go, duh, but we're going to lay it out. So remember that adipose tissue, so fat. Um, has a role in survival. It, you know, it prepares your body for famine. And I always like to use the comparison, not that these are humans, but bears who hibernate over the winter, right? They eat and eat and eat and eat and eat, and they get very large, and then they hibernate over the winter, and then they get thinned out. But they can still manage because you're going to rip your headphones right up because they've prepared for famine. So our fat just does that. So that's what I'm going to do at the triathlon next few weeks. I'm going to say... Sorry, I'm not going to be quite as good because I've been preparing for famine. <laughs> I mean, that's going to go over really well for my partner, the swimmer. Oh, anyway, so if we're looking at the food supply evolutionarily, I have to say it like that because it's a really long word. Think about the hunter and gatherer types of diets. Well, that's like me right now. No. Chopping trees is not hunter gathering when you eat Diet Mountain Dew and Ho-hos. Okay. Anyway, so that was an insecure food supply. You know, so you're hunting, you're gathering, but nothing was guaranteed. So your body had to hold mm, on to stuff. No plagues and stuff. Those were guaranteed. But anyway, go ahead. Okay. What I'm saying is the food supply was not guaranteed. Okay. Yes. Okay. So prehistoric times, kind of same thing. They ate a lot of high calorie things. Because that is what they had. I mean, this is prehistoric hunting and gathering. You're eating like live all parts of an animal, like higher fat supply. They did whatever they could to consume. I mean, they would eat the whole fatty part of a fish, whatever. But they also had high activity because they actually had to hunt and catch and move their bodies to get to the animals 
to hunt and gather. And to be clear, back then, and I'm going to use this as an argument for eating like I do, they only lived to be like 35. So, But the whole point is that they weren't, there was no obesity, there wasn't this, there was no fake sugar, there wasn't a lot of the same, again, they lived to be only certain ages, so they didn't get, you know, the degenerative, you know, disc diseases, but they, they died of famine and malnutrition and poor sanitation, like we talked about last time. Yeah. Now we don't have that same whatever and now we have the the new revolution the new revolution the first revolution which was about ten thousand years ago so i think this is like around the time like your parents maybe were <laughs> born <laughs> yeah yeah that cave i was born in still there still there so at this point we kind of transitioned from that hunting and gathering to people were producers so they were more farmers and so all the food was fresh food like this is natural food out of the ground you know, they may have an animal or so, you know, to get their goat milk or their cow milk, but it was, they farmed. And it wasn't the big farm machines, you know, there was no John Deere back then. And What? I know, screen tractors, what are they going to do? You don't even have a John Deere, you have that other one. That's New cool. Holland. There you go. And, but when you're farming and you're doing on the farming back like the olden days where you had to like walk and push and hoe and whatever the heck they did, <laughs> that's high activity. So... The biggest issues that they faced was plagues. So you were a little early with your plague oh, comment. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, that was, you know. Both. Yeah. And then climate change. So that's where things went poorly. Mm. And then we hit the second revolution. There's still more. There's a third one. Second yeah. revolution. There's three. There's three because the second one happens in the 19th century where it's the whole industrial revolution. We learn how to process things so we can get more food to more places. and Well, so it doesn't rot down it, the way. Exactly, and it ends up costing less. So there's a lot of flour and there's a lot of sugar, and this is where the processed food industry started. Mm. And then this third revolution has kind of just been more than 20th century. They well, it's like I'm going to sit in my chair, order a pizza, and drink a soda. And then, do you remember, okay, when I was a kid, now I'm aging myself, our television was like one of those box ones that was like, it was color though. My whole life I've had a color TV, but there was no like wireless remote. Like you would walk to the TV and push the buttons. My whole life I knew there were colored TVs. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't see one really till I was a little bit older, but. Like 50. Um, I grew up pretty, pretty, pretty modest. So food was easily accessible as, as it is now. We're all sedentary. You can drive places. You have a TV. You have a computer. People are video gaming. All of those things. So high calorie, low activity. Thus, this change. Huh. But. But the genome? The genome changed very little. Um, so your genome is what's telling you, oh my gosh, I'm preparing for famine. Well, and every fall. Right? You get ready for winter. Because there's no food. Can't grow stuff. Right. I was like, what? That doesn't yeah. happen now. But it's, you're it's kind of a mini famine. It is it is, and but yet we still have access and all of that. And then when you live in Minnesota, you have even less activity and people all how many patients say I'm we just usually saying, gain a little weight in the winter. I'm just saying evolutionarily, it seems like I eat more in the fall. Right. And I eat more fat probably. Well, and that's because your genome is telling you to do that. So the human brain still says, quote, eat in abundance to prepare for starvation. I don't know why I said quote there because the brain isn't like sending me that memo, but. Mm, I could get gene surgery that would be like my, my genes would tell me to eat better. 
That's when you go to the store and you buy the size smaller and you can't zip them. Yeah, that's probably true. And and really, you know, we've talked about epigenetics in a lot of different parts of the talks we've given. And really, some of this also applies. It's like super there. So there's actually a gene called the FTO gene, fat mass and obesity gene. Well, they could have had a little bit more politically correct one. So there is a positive association between the FTO gene and obesity. Mm. And there's another gene, and we'll explain how those both play in here. Um, a beta adrenergic receptor 2 and melanocortin receptor 4. And so these two genes, different expressions um, get altered following carb ingestion. So if you're a really high-carb consumer they get upregulated, so you continue to want to do that. That is what your epigenetics, and then that passes on, which is why when you see that five-year-old that weighs 100 pounds, their parents don't typically weigh normal BMI. And I would say that anecdotally uh, holds true. (laughs) And Nick, totally. Anecdotally. Okay, so how does this all work? So sugar-sweetened beverages and genetics together – give you a predisposition score Ooh. on the basis of there's like 32 BMI associated loci. So back, but we're just back to genetics here. Mm. People so. who have this trait, so people who have this gene activated and, you know, in their system, that's the, the dominant trait. When they're exposed to sugar-sweetened beverages – their BMI and adipose will be augmented. So here I'm going to give you a parallel to addiction world. Okay. People who have the predisposition for schizophrenia, not necessarily are they going to express schizophrenia in their life or develop it, but if they start smoking marijuana, especially at a young age, higher risk higher risk of schizophrenia. So if you're exposing especially younger humans, their children, to sugar-sweetened beverages, and my husband should not listen to this, um their chances of having a higher BMI and more adipose tissue are higher. Hmm. First, let me just say how impressed I am that you listened to to the talk that Drew gave the last week, you know, on schizophrenia and marijuana. Although you probably knew that already. But I've given a talk with it. I, I know mentioned. I'm just I'm you're just, just thanking me for and not only did I listen, I can I like internalized it and you, restated it. You remember it? Drew, the guy we gave an F. Yeah, but anyway, flipping moving, and he's listening to this too because I he know. asked me to do this ah. podcast. So, so this chromosome. So you're just saying, if you've got the chromosome, you drink a bunch of Mountain Dew or Kool Aid with lots of sugar. You're you're going on. You're going to have a problem. Yep. If you have that, I try and certain, simplify what you say. Yeah, if you have yeah. that certain variation in chromosome 16p 11.2, depending on the the alter or the variation you have, can affect the consumption of sweet foods. Oh, that gene. Yeah, I remember that one. That one. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go back a little bit. We're going to talk about Charles Darwin. So way long time ago. So we just talked about these evolutionary industrialization and how we as humans were hunter-gatherers in the prehistoric time to the industrial revolution to now. Well, what happened to the food? Okay, mm. this is how we get to the sugar world. This, the problem I'm having here is this is a wide circle to get me back to you know sugar. So so I'll try and hang with you, but if I fall asleep, just nudge nudge me here. Go ahead. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So I'm gonna Charles Darwin, you know he's the king of evolution. But when we're talking about even food. 
products. So there's traits that are in plants that are there to help the plant survive and have reproductive success. And this is not just plants. This is in everything. You know, at one point there was probably a purpose to our appendix. We don't need it anymore evolutionarily, so it's kind of going away. So plants had to do the same thing. And so different plants evolved with protective measures. So then animals, they didn't eat them. Mm. So they would get bitter or they might, you know, have the poppy seed or something. You know, they, they evolved. So, you know, it's like the roses have thorns, so things didn't eat them. So, so there was an evolutionary thing that happened with plants as well. We just don't talk about it because it's not as pertinent to humans, but in a lot of aspects, but plants did that as well. But, and so humans evolved to not eat the toxic food. And so, you know, there's some toxic plants out there there's that we a few. just don't eat. Um, like and the, mushrooms. What's the thing at Christmas? The yeah, those poinsettias. Plants. Yeah. Everyone has them low on the ground with kids that'll eat the leaves. Don't do that. Yeah, I've seen that. Okay, so what has happened during this revolutionary aspect of food I'm, is that over time, humans have adapted to be able to eat small amounts of toxins and consume small amounts of toxins such as penicillin came from a plant. So this we we learned to pull out things in plants that could actually help treat diseases. Huh. Okay? I'm with you. Okay, so certain things in plants can lead to animals and whatever including humans not eating them because they're poisonous, but then there's certain things that evolved that we've been able to like scientifically used to help treat diseases and help us. So there's this kind of double thing with plants out there. Mm. But yeah, and now now you're going to try and tie this to cocaine and tobacco. Think so, about it. Well, you know, at higher doses, of course, they are helpful. No, at higher doses. Oh, higher toxic. doses, they're toxic. I'm sorry. Correct. But you're saying at low dose, the way coca was used previously. So cocaine. coca, right. So animals consume the coca plant or the tobacco plant, and that didn't go well for certain animals. Humans, again, just like getting the penicillin positive, they found that if I chew on the coca leaves or on the kratom leaf or the tobacco leaves, it gives me energy. I can cope with fatigue. Um, Anxiety. I have better physical fitness. I have better chance of catching prey because I have just more alertness. And so we used those things back in the day, which was, you know, positive effects. Like when Molly lived in Malaysia for a while. Everybody's chewing on kratom leaves to go work in the fields. There was really not a ton of addiction there. That's because the amount of kratom in them was very small. Right. So you're you're saying they're taking a toxin, but taking just a very small amount. Exactly. And at a high amount, then we have issues. Correct. Okay. But there's, of course, with all of this, there's this evolutionary mismatch. So... You eat the foods and you get this positive reinforcement. I can go work in the fields because I consumed cocaine or I consumed tobacco. I consumed kratom. Um, that was a positive. Oh, and I'm the person with the phone problem. <gasps> the positive reinforcement. Um, and so, therefore, th- th- these positive reinforcements really started to tap into the dopamine and the positive reinforcement things in the brain. Hmm. So we were no longer needing to consume things for survival per se, like hunting and gathering. And so now we were able to continue to do the things we needed to do, hunter, gatherer, and farming 
with some things that just helped us a little bit. Your morning coffee helps you a little bit. Your morning Diet Mountain Dew kind of helps. And there's that positive reinforcement. I get energy from this cocaine, so I'm going to keep doing it. And now all of a sudden, the circuits of reward are getting heightened. And you're going to have to bring this back to sugar somehow before we switch to neural circuits for reward, which is the last part. So this goes back. No, but this is this is all going through, which is why we're going to have to like the the food as a reward thing is going to come. Maybe we should keep going to the next page too, because then we get into that more. Okay, we'll keep going. I'll get there. I promise. Okay. This is why this was really complicated. I I'm just I'm waiting with bated breath. You're waiting with bated breath. So before I explain how the food taps into that, I just want to touch on the limbic system and the reward system in the brain, just to remind people. Limbic system, primordial, this is what every animal in the universe, except maybe jellyfish, have. This is that fight or flight. This is the feel-good thing. This is the survival. Um, You, of course, have neurotransmitters, glutamate, opioid, GABA, that offer some reward. But, of course, dopamine is the biggest one. So in order to get a reward, you need hedonics, which is liking something, right? Mm -hmm. You need, which is opioids and GABA. You need reinforcement. So you learn it, more dopamine. And then you need the motivation. So the wanting of it, the incentive of having it in the dopamine. So this is where we are going to get to the food. Oh, I see. I see where you're going now. I feel much better. You're picking up what I'm putting down now. Yes. Okay. So here's how food satisfies that reward. So the dopamine is involved in feeding behavior. So if you took a mice and you knocked out their dopamine... So they did not have any dopamine. They don't eat. They don't drink. They don't do anything. They're just kind of blah. Sounds like depression. Right. If they have a lever to get food and they're they're like in their cage, these aren't the knockout mice anymore. So they're just regular mice in a cage and they have to push the lever to get their food. The whole excitement of pushing the lever, their dopamine goes up. It's just like going to get a drug. It's the, the act of acquiring it has that same rush as almost using it. So you're saying that the food's just sitting on the floor of their cage and they just eat it, not the same reward. Right. So if you can free feed whenever you want, not the same reward. Mm. So like labs, since I've had two lab, well, lab and a labradoodle, labs are dogs that you can't just leave their food dish out all day because they'll just eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. Mm. And it's like, whatever. But in the morning when you go and get like open the, the canister the food's in, the dogs are going crazy. You know, they have that dopamine rush, like I get to eat, I get to eat. If they are, they have been deprived. So if you've like starved these mice and then you leave out food just so they have, they can free feed, not push the lever, their dopamine will still rise because they've been in a starvation state. So are you getting there? I'm there. So food raises dopamine. So if it's a highly palatable food like Diet Mountain Dew and mini donuts for you, your dopamine rises. Oh, it does. But... Over t- like if you were to eat that every single day, your dopamine wouldn't rise as much every single day. Uh-huh. Sadly. Well, that explains why I did not have that for months. Right. And had it just once. It was like, wow. And this is what they call novelty recognition. Okay. So like you go into the gas station, it happens to be sitting there, right up there. Mm. So they say, don't have all this junk in your food because it really doesn't do as much. And I had an OB once here. I'm going to tangent here. An OB when I was doing my OB rotation in medical school who was like the healthiest eater and I couldn't understand it. Like we went to some place and got dessert and 
she like got her favorite food with her favorite dessert, which is chocolate ganache. And she ate like two bites. Huh? I'm like, wait, what? She goes, well, if you pay attention to your eating of it and the excitement of eating it after a couple bites, it just isn't as good anymore. Like, wait, what? You know, like it's, and it's really just that whole, that rush of the dopamine that I love this does start to wane. So even a few bites in, it doesn't have that same effect. You know, and I think people are wired differently that way because like, let's say I eat a pack of these chocolate donuts and my Diet Mountain Dew. When I get to the last one, it's like, I need more and I can probably eat half another pack before I get that. Like, and it's like, okay, now they don't taste that good. So it's probably a little bit genetic. Right. Because no, one or two bites wouldn't do it. One or two bites wouldn't do it. Mm -mm. This next one, I'm going to kind of just fly over because it's really weird, but it's this whole cue invigorating food seeking. So there's cues that make you think like you see McDonald's, the big MR. This is why, you know, like they put Mm. those, you just, you know what you're getting there. And the so, arches. Right. But if you're not hungry, um, you should not want it. However, with evolutionarily stuff in our brains, and this is for people who have more food addiction, sugar addiction, their genetics, even if they're not hungry and they see the, the McDonald's sign, they still go there and get it. And huh. so now we get more obesity and Well, there's all been of studies, that. of course, of like if you shop when you're hungry, what you buy is way different, right? Right. Because you're looking, you're hungry, and so you're looking for that reinforcement. So you're buying foods that are probably more desirable or palatable. Right. When normally you'd buy what you need. There you go. Yeah. Which is why I think ordering your groceries online, I tend to buy way less crap. Because huh. if I'm ordering it online, I can see what I need in my house, and I'm not walking through and I'm seeing the yummy stuff. Huh. I don't know. So there is a few other peptides in our bodies. I'm not going to go through them all, but there are other things. Um, actually, I'm going to touch on them a little bit. So the orexogenic <laughs> peptides, okay? There's some like peptides in our bodies. Um, if you inject this in the brain, it'll actually increase your food intake. Wow. Just by adding this chemical. Cholecystokinin, if you inject this, it makes you not want to eat. So these are things in your body and your brain that are normal, positive and negative based. That's kind of how you get your normal hunger cues is, is these normal kind of waxing and waning of these, you know, peptides. Mm. If I got to remember what I was going with that. I have no idea. I have no idea. I'm losing my voice though. Oh, your ghrelin, which is always the one they talk about in obesity. And they talk about this a lot, like in certain diabetics that if it's, higher you will want more food and it will overcome what you actually need wow so there's all sorts of drug investigations on is there a way to have like anti-grelin which had other negative consequences so it's not really gone very far not to be confused with gremlins that's totally different i think so okay except gremlins tend to be larger so maybe they have high grelin they could have high grelins so i'm gonna just we'll, we'll summarize all this complicated stuff in a minute Last page. We'll stop after these first couple. If you do neuroimaging, so the brain scan things that are colored and fancy, people who have um, people who are more obese, so the, the larger population, people who have food addiction, if you wanted to call it that, sugar addiction, 
they actually have lower sensitivity to their normal dopamine. So what happens in a, in a person is when you are hungry and you're anticipating food, your dopamine goes up. Once you get your food, those peptides we just talked about, the cholecystokinin, will then rise, telling your dopamine to go down because you're now full. So you need some of these peptides to go up to tell you to eat. So you have, you know, nutrition. But then as you're reaching that where you're not really hungry and you've reached your nutritional needs, the, that peptide's supposed to go down. The other one's supposed to come up to tell you to stop eating. And I'm assuming that this would be different in people who have a sugar addiction slash problem. Correct. So okay. their dopamine doesn't respond the way it should. It doesn't drop after they've had any nutrition. The sugar doesn't have that same effect. It doesn't have that same rush. It doesn't tell them, mm. don't eat this. And there's differences in the amount of dopamine receptors available in the brain. So they actually have what they call a reward deficiency syndrome. So they never really get that same reward. Mm. Like you get excited. You see the Mountain Dew, the donuts, you get that reward sensation. You I'm know? salivating right now. <laughs> <laughs> right. But a person who has the dysfunction in this, they never really get that reward. They uh. eat it just to eat it. They eat it because they think it should be good or whatever. And so other things that patients with this dysfunction do is actually seek all types of substances. They're more impulsive. Um, they are more into the immediate reward seeking. They tend to have more substance use disorders. And if you look at patients with substance use disorders, their brain scans look the same way as people with obesity, quote, food addiction. Wow. Quote, and, sugar addiction. And so They're all kind of tied to kind together. of bring that all together, you're you're kind of saying that people are predisposed to do different things with their sugar as far as their dopamine levels, which then drives them to either continue to eat or to, or to stop. Correct. And this and so, all goes back to like chromosome 16 and those, the FTO gene, all of that. Huh. And so does this dysfunction in their dopamine also affect substance use? Yeah. So I'm going to end with that. Okay. Good, good lead in. I know you can see what I was going to say. This is the last little bit. And then, I mean, we will come back another time. Sorry, this got long, but this is one of the most well-studied things when we're trying to compare sugar with different substances of abuse. And the studies have all been done with cocaine, even though we talked about alcohol with sugar last time. But if you consume cocaine or you can consume sugar, both of them will actually increase the amount of mu receptors, which is where opioids bind. So they both will increase that. They have increased binding of dopamine receptors, both of them, but yet of the certain type of dopamine receptors. And then they actually have decreased different types of dopamine receptors. So basically, whether you consume cocaine or sugar, you get the same genetically biologically, neurobiologically, you get the same response. Your brain reacts very similarly mm. with both of them at the molecular level. Although my guess would be that the level to what you get change is different. Correct. Because clearly you don't get a cocaine-like effect with from sugar. sugar typically. Well, yeah. and that's and a lot of that is because sugar also impacts other things. Okay. But in the in the kind of dopamine system which is our feel-good system the limbic system it acts the same way but sugar also impacts these other hormones and these other places mm. and cocaine works in other places too so we're just scratching the surface of where you're going to go with the next time we do this I although i don't think it'll be next week that we 
move on to the this other so parts of sugar. This was so complicated. I'm going to let y'all process this a little bit. All right. I think we got long here. Sorry all that. I hope it's helpful. It's all, if you have questions, please reach out. It's really fascinating. So, all right. Well, and thanks, if, everybody. If all you could see me, I talk with my hands a lot this talk, trying to yeah. explain things to Kurt. Yeah, I'm going to need stitches when you <laughs> hit me, when you were flailing with your arms as you talked. But, yes, yeah, thanks, for everybody, for listening. This is a little bit different than our usual addiction topics, but fascinating that people have that kind of response from sugar. All right, next time. Otherwise, here's Casey. Come on in, out of the cold. Sit down with us and warm your soul. We offer you all you require. But there ain't no sticks to light our fire. Chicken bones and moldy bread. There's no place like old nowhere. There's nowhere to go but home. After supper time has passed, we'll celebrate and raise a glass. We hope you brought some wine and beer, cause you won't be finding any here. singing songs we hope that you would sing along if you can find some instruments each tune would play is 15 cents there's no need to go to sleep we don't plan to work